Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, To one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the gospel of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the 155 passengers on the U.S. Airways flight in 2009 that was departing LaGuardia, and just minutes into the flight, you hear something. You're not really sure what you hear, but if you had to say what you might have heard, you might have heard geese in the engine. The U.S. Airways flight in 2009-1549, an Airbus 320 carrying 155 passengers just minutes after takeoff over Queens near Brooklyn, piloted by Chelsea Sullenberger, hit a massive pack of Canadian geese to the extent where it created lack of visibility on the windshield, and these geese literally entered into the plane's engines. As a result of that, they lost all power, and they knew they were in trouble. They started to contemplate and think, what do we do? Can we get back to LaGuardia? After all, we're less than five miles from LaGuardia. They feel like they can't do that. There's another airport in New Jersey that would suffice for landing this plane, but they feel like they can't get there either. And so Chelsea, known as Sully, makes a quick decision and lands an Airbus with 155 people in a small strip of the Hudson River between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Pretty amazing. What would it have been like to be on that plane? Minutes into your flight, you're just getting settled. You just plugged in your headphones. And all of a sudden, terror, disaster. What's that sound? What's that smell? What are we going to do? Help. I think we might perish. And then the skill of one particular pilot lands the plane safely. All survived. Every one of them. I can't help but to think that that might be similar 
to the experience the disciples had with Jesus on the storm that day. On the Sea of Galilee, as the waves and the storm were increasing, here they are on this boat knowing something has gone wrong. Something is wrong, and I think we're going to die. Yet there Jesus is in the midst of this literal storm. And of course, there are figurative ways that we will look at this this morning as well. But the main thing I want us to see from Mark chapter 4 this morning is that the Lord's presence brings comfort in the midst of trouble. The Lord's presence brings comfort in the midst of trouble. You know, trouble seems unavoidable, right? Jesus himself in the Gospels specifically says, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, there will be turbulence. In this world, jet engines of great airplanes don't always work. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, he says in John, I have overcome the world. Mark chapter 4 is a clear example of Christ's overcoming presence, which brings us comfort in the midst of inevitable trouble. But when we hear that, if we're thinking and if we're engaged, immediately we might start to feel some resistance. It's important for us to even identify the resistance we have to truth claims, always. So if the truth claim from Mark 4 is, Christ brings comfort through His presence in the midst of trouble. Some resistance we have to that is, in the midst of trouble, I often feel more abandoned than I do comforted. Is that not true for so many of us? Don't so many of us feel very similar to to the disciples even in this situation? They're in the midst of trouble we'll talk more about the trouble they were experiencing practically. And as a result, they exclaim, do you not care? And in many ways, is that not the question that we are asking every day on some level? And in hard seasons and on hard days, we're really asking, seriously? You're going to sleep? God, wake up. Somewhat of a humorous uh, take on this idea because sleeping uh, can communicate great trust and rest, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but can also communicate potential disinterest, right? And that really is, on some level, are we asking God, are you sleeping? I'm not really a night person, more of a morning person. There have been many stories, uh, too many to recount, Throughout my life, in the evenings particularly, when I fall asleep at inopportune times. This has been true with all people throughout all my life, but these moments in marriage uh, are particularly precarious, shall we say. We're all excited. We're going to go to the Fox Theater in St. Louis. We're going to see Les Mis live. I love Les Mis. I can't wait to see it. We're out. We're there. About a third of the way into it, 
sleeping. Even worse, unfortunately, countless number of times, especially early on in our marriage when we didn't have more skill and we just trying to kept pushing through nature, uh, we would be having serious, deep conversations at times. And Emily's talking. And I'm engaged until I'm not because I'm sleeping. And she's like, are you sleeping? Did you hear anything I just said? I trust maybe your laughs. Uh, you can relate to some degree. But in a sense, and on a much deeper level, on a more ultimate level, that's what the disciples are. Seriously? You're falling asleep? And it would probably be good to just go ahead and concede that you feel like that with God. A lot. But what Jesus calls us to is to trust Him and to follow Him. He shows us once again that there are many dangers in discipleship. Following Christ is not a walk in the park. Following Christ is actually an invitation to death. Definitely death to ourselves. Definitely death to our own saving devices. And at times, potential physical death. That actually, Christians all over the world, even this day, are experiencing regularly. They understand the dangers of discipleship. Mark 4 displays the dangers of discipleship. But in the midst of contemplating the dangers of discipleship and feeling abandoned from God, we still come back to this text and we can see in principle that we can find comfort with the Lord's presence in the midst of trouble. Why? Because the Lord's presence is powerful. The Lord's presence is calming. The Lord's presence is challenging. And the Lord's presence is affirming. So we find comfort in the midst of trouble through the presence of the Lord and His presence in Mark 4 shows us that He is powerful, that He is calming, that He is challenging, and that He, His presence is affirming. Let's unpack these a little bit more here. We first see that the presence of the Lord in the midst of this storm is powerful. But you know what else is powerful? The storm. Pretty cool thing that's going on in this text. I think some of you would know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and at times it can be helpful to examine behind the scenes some of the original text. And there's one particular Greek word in this short narrative that happens three times, and it's the Greek word that is transliterated mega. There was a, in the Greek, mega storm. There was a mega calm, and there was a mega fear. The Greek word translated mega in these short verses appears three times, and the first time it appears is with this storm. This storm was great. The Sea of Galilee was about 17 miles from north to south, and it was about eight miles from east to west, and it had a history of being able to create or have storms created within its midst that were serious. The boat that they were in, scholars estimate, was no... I don't know what you picture, by the way. This is where, if you have familiarity with the Scriptures, unfortunately, in this story, your familiarity might be more in the realm of, like, felt, right, um, than in the realm of reality. And I don't know if you tend to think, like, John boat or what, but 
Scholars believe the boat that, were com- that was common for this type of journey was probably about 25 feet long, about seven and a half feet wide, could house up to about 15 people. After all, Jesus' disciples, particularly these men, were professional fishermen. So like they were very familiar with boats, and they probably didn't have junky boats. They probably had really good ones. And so here you've got this substantial boat in this substantial body of water with a mega storm so big. Think about this. It's at night. You ever been on the water at night without a light? Kind of scary. A storm arises and the waves are so great that the body, uh, that the boat starts to take in water. As in, the waves are overcoming, filling the boat with water in the pitch black dark of the night. You ever been overcome by waves in a boat? I haven't. I've had the experience of being overcome by waves just in my body, you know, through different oceans. I can remember one time specifically being in Brazil, um, unbeknownst to me and the students that I was with on this mission trip. We were having one of the greatest body surfing days of our lives until the owner of this little inn in Brazil started to come out in great panic to warn us uh, of how steep and big the undertow was. And I can remember that specific, it was a blast. But it was also one of those things where our bodies could hardly withstand the pounding and the crashing of the waves. But imagine being in a boat at night with waves pounding and splashing so hard and so high that the boat starts to be overtaken with water. It was a mega storm. It was a powerful storm. And what's Jesus doing? Being human. This story is really interesting. We see Christ's full deity, Him be fully God in this story, but we also see His real humanity. Why was Jesus sleeping? Why do you sleep? Because He was tired. What was He tired from? I don't know. Full day's work. Healing people. Praying for people. Speaking to people. On His feet all day. Even as humanity is seen in that He desires to get away from the crowds. Needs a little space, right? Everybody's an introvert to some degree. Enough's enough at some point, right? And so Jesus, enough was enough. He had to get away from the crowds. He wanted to get into the boat. And when he gets into the boat, as soon as he gets comfortable, he falls asleep. Why? Two reasons. One, he's human. Two, sleep, maybe more than anything else, exhibits a pretty fantastic trust in God. And lack thereof, unfortunately, as many of us are familiar with, demonstrates the opposite. Psalm 3, David says, I lay down and slept. By the way, Psalm 3 is written in the context of Saul seeking to take David's life. And David says, even though somebody's trying to kill me, I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. You got a sense that Jesus has this. He was tired because he was human, but he slept because he trusted God. We see the power actually of his humanity in this, but we also, and even more importantly, see the power of his deity 
in the midst of this mega storm. That once he is awakened, he stills the storm. It reminds me of one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament from Job chapter 38. Job had a rough go of life. Job is a pretty disturbing book in my estimation, by the way. But finally, Job is at the end of his rope, at the end of the book. And he looks to God when he has been so faithful, so like far more faithful than I ever would have been for a far longer time than I ever would have been. But at some point, even though the text doesn't give us the exact example, Job says, all right, what's the deal? Like, and there's a lot of these moments in Scripture, actually. Um, uh, kind of these like what the moments, right? Like what the heck? And then God says, all right, interesting that you should ask. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. By the way, when God uses like redemptive sarcasm, on one hand it's funny, and on the other hand I kind of don't know what to do. It's a little intimidating. Um, Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it first burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? Like the doors and the bars of the world. Not like the doors and the bars of a building. And then I love this verse 11. When I said, this far you may come... And no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever thought about that when you're on the beach? You're like, huh, why, why does the, I wonder, you know, I know the tide moves, especially on the East Coast, a lot, but still it stops. Why? Because God said, stop. And you know, Jesus wasn't born. In the New Testament. Jesus has always been. And so Jesus is with the Father. Making the triune God in Job 38. Speaking to Job. And Jesus is also with the disciples in the boat in Mark 4. Once again saying, stop. Because the power of his deity commands all things. Even the waves. Here's a question before we move on. We see in here that Christ had the power to still this literal storm, which would cause us logically logically to conclude that Christ has the power over all things. Furthermore, that means Christ has the power to calm and still your storms. Do you believe it? I don't know exactly where the waves are crashing in, in your boat, but I have some good guesses, I bet, because this is where they crash in in my boat. Do you have to deal with the waves of marital tension, pride, selfishness, distrust, insecurity, those waves ever crash into your boat? What about the waves of wayward or rebellious children? 
those waves ever crash into your boat? Do the waves of isolation and loneliness ever crash into your boat? What about the waves of job stress? Ever crash into your boat? Financial woes? What about indwelling sin? Those waves ever crash into your boat? The waves of self-hatred and shame and sickness? The decline of our health, even death? Do these waves ever crash into our boats? Question is, who has the power? Number one, to stop them. But number two, and actually the scripture would say even more importantly, to be with us in them. Something that we shouldn't miss here is that Christ was in the boat, right? Like, he might have been sleeping. He might have been seeming like he didn't care. But I'll tell you what would be the real testimony that he didn't care. That he wasn't even in the boat. That he just sent them off into a storm without him. They didn't like his disposition in the boat. But don't lose the fact that he was in the boat. Do you see Christ in your boat in life as the waves are crashing over to you? And do you look to him to bring power over the trouble that you experience? Or do you look to other things that don't have the power to tell the waves to stop? Not only do we see and are comforted by the presence of the Lord in the midst of trouble because he is powerful, because his presence is powerful. We've already alluded to this on some level, but also his presence is calming. In this particular scenario, the presence of Christ is calming because he changes the circumstances. Right? So that they are overwhelmed with the circumstances they're having to deal with. After all, it was a mega storm. But then Christ says, stop. And then there is a mega calm. wonder what that would have sounded like, by the way. Christ's presence is calming because he has the power to change circumstances. He can make the waves stop. He can take away the cancer. He can bring about repentance in the life of someone who is wayward. He can lift the heavy hand of the enemy through the spiritual attack that you live with today. He can do that. And there's no reason to not ask for him to do that, to change the circumstances of your life that would create a calm. Yet at the same time, He doesn't promise to always change our circumstances. So we've got to understand too that we can be comforted by the calmness of his presence even when the circumstances don't change. The circumstances did change in this story, but our circumstances don't always change. That does not make his presence less calming. Isaiah says in chapter 43, when you pass through the waters. Not if, but when you pass through the waters, the waves will not overtake you. It doesn't say there won't be waves. It actually says there will be, but here's the deal. They won't overtake you. Why? Because I'm with you. 
I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. So he can bring a calm by alleviating circumstances, or he can bring through his presence calmness by meeting us in the midst of those circumstances. And that's what we long for. One of my favorite hymns, it's not as well known, it's called For All the Saints, and there's a fantastic line in it written historically by a man named William Howe. He talks about, he says, sweet is the calm of paradise. And another hymn, more modern day, Mumford and Sons, in their song, After the Storm, write and sing this. After the storm, I run and run as the rains come, and I look up, and I look up. On my knees and out of luck, I look up. And then the chorus. And there will come a day. Or there will come a time you'll see with no more tears. And love will not break your heart, but dismiss your fears. Get over your hill and you will see what you find there with grace in your heart and flowers in your hair after the storm. That's what we're all longing for. We're longing for this storm ultimately to be calmed. And we can bank on that promise. We cannot bank on the promise that Christ will always calm every storm here and now. What we can bank on is that in the new heavens and the new earth, we live in the calm of paradise. We live after the storm. And as a result of that reality, here and now, our lives can be transformed because we're comforted by His presence, because it brings calmness. But His presence also brings challenge. Did you catch that in this story? So his, it, we, we see that His presence is powerful. We see that His presence is calming. But we also see that His presence is challenging. Right? So, so the text tells us that He rebukes the storm. He silences the storm. He does not rebuke his disciples, but he does challenge them. And I've looked. I wondered. I was like, I wonder if the word's the same. No matter what the English says, does he use the same word for the storm as he does his disciples? And I was happy to see, no. He rebukes the storm, but he speaks words of challenge to his disciples. And we need to be challenged this morning. And essentially what he was telling the disciples was this. This was the challenge. Are you still trying to live by sight and not by faith? Oh, you of little faiths, is what he's literally saying. Which we should find encouragement that there was faith, by the way. And we see faith by them exhibited in this story when they go wake Jesus up. Because the presumption in waking Jesus up is this. He can do something about it. And that's faith. And that should be applauded. Because you see, we're all a paradox, right? I don't care who you are, where you are, how you are, how long you've been a Christian, how mature you think you are, or not. We're all a paradox of faith and doubt. And by the way, doubt is not the same as unbelief. The reality is, we believe in doubt. 
And Jesus understands that. And he doesn't just say it's okay, nor does he rebuke us and judge us and condemn us, but he challenges us. Do you not yet have faith? It's because you're living by sight, not by my promises. Christ's presence is powerful, it's calming, it's challenging. And then ultimately, the presence of Christ is affirming. What does it affirm? His Lordship. What does it affirm? His Godness. It affirms His deity. It affirms His preeminence. It affirms that He actually is the Lord God Almighty. And guess what? The disciples just like us hadn't quite figured that out. And they needed constant reminders. But this story was pretty impactful. I think we could call this a watershed moment for them. Because what we see at the end of the passage is that their fear slash their respect was mega. It was a mega storm and a mega calm and a mega fear after the fact. What in the Did you see that? What just happened? It's affirming for who Christ is. It affirms the reality that no matter how big the storm is, Christ is bigger. Now, I don't know how you typically judge growth in your life if you're a Christian. And I don't know if you ever have conversations with people like this whether these be explicit or implicit questions or whether you just estimate on your own. But it seems to me that so often when we think about how are you doing spiritually, we start to talk about, basically, we start to grade ourselves on our application or lack thereof in practicing the spiritual disciplines. How are you doing spiritually? Well, not really been reading my Bible a lot recently. How are you doing spiritually? You know, I, I miss church pretty good bit. We got the flu, but I'm also tired that service is really early and it rains every Sunday. <laughs> right? We, we tend to estimate our spiritual growth by what we do and what we don't do. And I'm not saying those things are irrelevant with regard to barometers of spiritual vitality, but I got a better one. As in like a more biblical one. Here's a gauge for you. Is Christ bigger? That's a much more accurate barometer for growth in your life. Are you finding Christ bigger? You know, like bigger than the storms of your life. You know, like bigger than your sin. Or I don't know, maybe bigger than you and your fear and your insecurity and your lack of identity. Is Christ bigger than those things? If the answer and the trajectory is yes, then you're growing. You're growing in understanding who Christ is. Because you see, He must increase, John the Baptist says, and we must decrease. Well, for the disciples on this day in Mark 4, guess what? Christ increased. 
His presence brought power. His presence brought calmness. His presence brought a challenge. And His presence ultimately brought this affirmation in the midst of great storms. Which had them concluding that He was bigger and better than they thought that He was. Which increased their faith in the midst of trouble. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago in the late 1800s. He had a family, a wife named Anna, five children. In the late 1800s, from Chicago, he sent Anna and his five children on a boat across the Atlantic to London. He had some business that he had to wrap up and finish in Chicago, so he sent them a few days ahead of him. In those few days, en route across the Atlantic, their vessel collided with a Scottish vessel that completely sunk it to the ground, killing almost everyone on board, including his five children, his wife, miraculously survived through hanging onto a piece of debris and was rescued. She sent a telegram back to her husband that simply said, saved, alone. Upon getting this, he knew he had to go. So he boarded a boat across the Atlantic as well, just as soon as he could upon hearing this news. And as he was traveling on the same route, on the same body of water, the captain pointed out to Horatio Spafford the point in the place where the other ship had collided and where his children, unfortunately, had met their death. Upon Horatio Spafford's contemplation of this horrific event, he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, I confess, even as I read that and hear that story, I'm tempted, I think, out of a lack of faith to discount it as sensational or even silly. I don't know if other people think like that, but I pray that you would work against that. Lord, we do encounter many Trials, troubles, and storms in this life in in acute and profound, long-lasting ways. We pray that you would bring your presence to bear. We pray that you would bring your power and your calmness to bear. And we pray in the midst of these storms, we would find comfort and hope in you. And ultimately, we would find you as bigger. Bigger than our fears, bigger than our insecurities, bigger than our storms. We do also wait for the day, Lord, and long, and even ask that you would come and that you would bring it quickly. We're ready for all storms to end forever. 
So come quickly. Amen.